Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. In some people's eyes, Patricia Curran was the epitome of privilege and respectability. As the daughter of a judge in Northern Ireland, she moved in the highest circles of society. But one chilly November night in 1952, everything changed. Patricia had taken the bus from Belfast to Whitehappy, where her family's sprawling mansion, Glen House, stood at the top of a winding tree-lined lane. It was a journey Patricia made numerous times before, but she always called ahead for an escort to guide her up the dark driveway. This particular evening, something was different. Patricia never made that call, and she never made it home. A disappearance set off a frenzied investigation that would ultimately expose the dark underbelly of the elite, a world where power and privilege are used to protect the guilty and condemn the innocent. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 50 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part case. The second installment will be available in three days.
Patricia Curran was the 19-year-old daughter of Doris Curran and Mr. Justice Lancelot Curran, a Northern Ireland High Court judge. Mr. Justice Curran had been a judge in the High Court since 1949, and prior to this he was the youngest ever Attorney General in Northern Ireland. Patricia was the couple's only daughter. She had two older brothers, 26-year-old Desmond and 24-year-old Michael. The three siblings were all privately educated, with Desmond having won a double first at Cambridge. He was in his first year working as a barrister. Michael had qualified as a chartered accountant and was employed as an estate agent. As for Patricia, she was enrolled at Queen's University as an art student, was interested in university affairs, and was a keen squash player. The family home was Glen House in Whiteabbey, a spacious mansion surrounded by ten acres of dense woodland. The Currens had always been prominent figures in the village and were among the few families who owned a car. On November 12th, 1952, Patricia Curran attended morning classes at Queen's University. That afternoon, she met a friend for lunch at a cafe in Belfast. Patricia and John Steele had first met at a university dance on October 21st. They hit it off immediately and met up around once a week, often playing squash together. After lunch, the pair went to a nearby bookstore before heading to Belfast Library. Patricia had planned on catching the 5pm bus back to White Abbey. Typically, when she arrived in the village, she would call home and somebody would collect her from the bus station to drive her home. If nobody answered, then Patricia would be walked home by somebody in the village. Her brother Michael later said, she always, without exception, had taken advantage of one of these alternatives. The family were anticipating that phone call, but it never came. They waited for several hours, assuming Patricia was staying out with some friends, but when she did not show up by 11.20pm, the time the last bus from Belfast to White Abbey was due, they grew even more concerned. Her father Lancelot contacted Patricia's friends. None of them had seen her. Lancelot subsequently called the police and Officer Rutherford arrived at the family home. Along with one of Patricia's brothers, Desmond, they began searching the vast grounds of the property and the surrounding area. It was pitch black outside, and the only thing that pierced the darkness were the flashlights, as Patricia's loved ones shouted her name as they scoured the gardens. At around 2am, Desmond Curran was searching along the 400-yard lane, which led through woodland back to the property. As he scanned in between the trees, 
he noticed something set apart from the landscape. When he drew closer, Desmond could see that it was his little sister. Patricia was not moving, and it was clear she was injured in some way as blood pooled around her body. On first inspection, it appeared as though she had been shot. She was lying underneath a tree, close to the footpath that led to the drive around 200 yards from the front door. She was fully clothed, but there was evidence of a struggle. Patricia's tartan skirt had several small tears, as did her undergarments. Her brown court shoes were pulled off, along with her yellow beret. These items were found on the narrow pathway nearby, along with her books. Desmond also saw that one of her coat buttons had been torn off. It was lying alongside her handbag, which was unopened. More details were gathered when Officer Rutherford arrived at the scene. He found several other small buttons that he collected as evidence. With a sharp mind, he theorised that these may have belonged to Patricia's killer and came off during the intense struggle. Before Officer Rutherford could call for backup, Desmond lifted up his sister's body and carried her to the car. Along with his father, they then sped to the home of Dr. Wilson, the village doctor, who sadly told them that life-saving measures were out of the question. Patricia was dead, and rigor mortis had already set in. Patricia's body was taken for a post-mortem, and dozens of officers from the Royal Ulster Constabulary descended on the Curran family home. They began scouring the grounds for a murder weapon, believed to be a gun. Dr. Alan Thompson, a staff chemist at the Northwest Forensic Science Laboratory in Preston, flew to Belfast the next day to assist in the investigation. As news of Patricia's tragic death spread, locals began to speculate about what could have led to such a heinous crime. Her family contended that she had no enemies. The first theory that crossed everyone's mind was that the killing was an act of revenge against Mr Justice Lancelot Curran. Since Patricia's father had served as a high court judge, he had sent numerous people to prison over the past three years. Another theory suggested that Patricia may have been accidentally shot by a poacher. Meanwhile, the police asked the public to get in touch if they knew anything about Patricia's whereabouts after 5pm on November 12th. Investigators first spoke with her friend John Steele, who confirmed that he had walked Patricia to the bus stop in Belfast and waved goodbye as the vehicle set off in the direction of Whiteabbey. His statement was corroborated by a handful of eyewitnesses who were on the same bus as Patricia. 
George Chambers, an 11-year-old newspaper delivery boy, told the police he saw Patricia disembark the bus at White Abbey shortly after 5pm. At the time, he was doing his newspaper route and walking in the same direction as Patricia. He delivered the newspaper to Glen House and saw nothing suspicious. Another eyewitness explained that they saw Patricia begin walking in the direction of the mansion, which did not follow her usual custom of calling somebody to either collect her or escort her home. It would have taken her around 15 minutes to walk from the bus stop to the spot where her body was discovered. The following day, the post-mortem was completed, and the pathologist concluded that Patricia had not been shot as first thought. She had been stabbed to death. She sustained over 37 stab wounds, including eight which were fatal. The weapon had penetrated her lungs, heart and liver. There was also evidence that Patricia had been struck by a blunt object. The injuries were concentrated on her face and chest, but extended down to her thighs as well. According to the pathologist, the numerous stab wounds had given the impression that Patricia was shot. A police statement described the weapon used in the killing as a sharp stiletto-type blade. The positioning of Patricia's injuries suggested that the killer may have been kneeling down when they attacked her. A revelation that Patricia had been stabbed instead of shot discounted the theory that a poacher may have killed her. In an effort to trace Patricia's killer, Officers from the Royal Ulster Constabulary began taking statements from the 2,000 villagers that called White Abbey home. Police also visited the RAF camp at Edenmore, speaking with the 40 airmen stationed there. They were questioned about their movements on the night of Patricia's murder, and their clothing was examined. Afterwards, officers visited a construction company in the nearby village of Whitehouse, where Patricia had been employed for a year as a van driver before she enrolled at university. One official at the construction company said to the Daily Telegraph, I think she was working for pocket money. She was a lovely girl and well-liked by the men who respected her. Police interviewed all passengers who left Belfast by rail, sea or air and checked every dry-cleaning business in the area on the chance the killer dropped off their blood-stained clothing. However, despite their exhaustive efforts, there were no leads. Nobody could offer any insight into Patricia Curran's murder. By all accounts, she was a well-rounded individual never struggled to make friends, and certainly never made any enemies. Officers continued in the search for the murder weapon. They wore waders as they trudged through a small stream that ran through the grounds of the family home. After two days of intense examination, they decided to change tact 
and utilise mine detectors, hoping this could unearth the murder weapon if it had been discarded by the killer. Unfortunately, however, the search turned up no clues that could assist in the investigation. Meanwhile, Patricia's father, Lancelot, issued an appeal on behalf of the family. He said, We plead with everyone who has the slightest piece of information that might help the police to trace the murderer of our daughter to give such information to police. There may be some who are in possession of useful information but who do not desire to divulge their names. We plead with such people to get in touch with police or us by anonymous letter or telephone. Investigators began working on the theory that Patricia may have known her killer. This was based on the discovery of Patricia's books, which were found in a neat pile close to her body. It was speculated that Patricia may have walked up the driveway with the suspect and paused to converse with them, setting her books down. To investigate further, a group of officers reconstructed the scenario, with one carrying books under his arms. Another officer simulated an attack, causing the books to scatter in every direction. The books being neatly stacked suggested that Patricia had arranged them in this manner just before she was attacked. Officers deemed it unlikely that the killer would have found time to restack the books after the murder. That said, despite their efforts, the police struggled to determine a motive for the murder. Patricia had not been subjected to a sexual assault, nor had she been robbed. Revenge or romance were also deemed unlikely to be the driving force behind the crime, leaving police with a dearth of leads. It was, however, possible the murder had political or religious ties. Northern Ireland was in turmoil, primarily due to the long-standing religious and political divisions that existed. There was sectarian violence, which had been simmering since the 1920s. This was rooted in the division between the predominantly Protestant community who wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom and the Catholics who sought an independent and united Ireland. Furthermore, there was also the possibility that Patricia had not been the intended victim. While the pathologist had first estimated that Patricia likely died shortly after she disembarked the bus, further examination called this into question. It was now theorised that Patricia may have been killed as late as midnight, around two hours before her body was discovered. The police then announced that they now believed she was hit in the face and then carried several yards to the spot where she was found. Investigators reached this determination after coming across three buttons and a brooch that belonged to Patricia, found yards away from her body. After being carried, she was stabbed more than 30 times, and the police believe that for reasons unknown, 
The killer was kneeling beside her while plunging the weapon deep into her body. In the meantime, the police received a tip from a member of the public who reported seeing a man having a cup of tea and a sandwich in the Highway Cafe in Carrick, Fergus. He was spotted the morning after Patricia was stabbed to death, and the cafe owner noticed that the individual appeared to be unaware he had some hayseeds or chaff in his hair. The man was around 27 years old, of medium build and stood around 5 feet 9 inches tall with light brown hair, dark eyebrows and dark eyes. It looked as though he had been sleeping rough somewhere. He spoke in what was described as an educated Irish accent and the witness explained that he left the cafe in a hurry. The cafe owner Isabel Gorman said, He was dishevelled and tired looking and did not seem the type who should have been like that at 11 o'clock in the morning. The police appealed for this individual to come forward and identify himself although he was not considered a suspect, just a person of interest. A police spokesman said, It may be that this man has nothing to do with the murder. We are working on the basis that the murderer could have been a man or a woman. Despite these comments, investigators theorised that the killer was a man, privately voicing the opinion that a woman could not be capable of committing such a violent murder. On November 15, 1952, Patricia Curran was laid to rest during a private burial service at Drumbeg Churchyard. Dr Murray, a Presbyterian minister, said, If there was ever a young girl who deserved a serene and happy life, It was Miss Patricia Curran. We saw her growing up in our midst, unfolding like a flower, unlike all lovely things, helping to shed happiness around her. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. After more than 100 hours of intense investigation, the police were no closer to finding a suspect than they were on day one. On November 17th, Sir Richard Pym, Inspector General of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, asked Scotland Yard for assistance. He announced to the public, the officer will join in our deliberations and not take charge of them, but we hope he will be able to make suggestions to help us. It was the first time that the police in Northern Ireland had called for Scotland Yard's assistance in a murder investigation. For decades, there had been very few murders that were seemingly random in Northern Ireland. Sir Richard stated, Until this murder, for which no motive has become apparent, is cleared up, there will be understandable anxiety in the minds of a great many people, particularly parents. Before assistance from Scotland Yard arrived, the police in Northern Ireland made several appeals to the public. They announced they were looking for the driver of a car which passed the current home around 7.10pm on the night Patricia was killed. The second appeal was to a tall young woman who was wearing a yellow beret and walking along Circular Road in Whiteabbey, 150 yards from the current home. This was at approximately 5.40pm on the night Patricia was killed. However, the police admitted that there was a possibility the young woman they wanted to identify was in fact Patricia. She also wore a yellow beret that night, which was discovered near her body. Support from Scotland Yard came in the form of Superintendent John Capstick and Sergeant Dennis Hawkins. The officers were informed by the police in Northern Ireland that the primary theory they were now pursuing suggested that Patricia Curran was killed by somebody she knew. Investigators speculated that when she disembarked the bus at White Abbey, Patricia did not call her parents because she felt comfortable enough to walk with her killer, who may have been waiting at the bus stop. This theory contradicted the eyewitness testimony from those who saw Patricia walking alone, however. Two days after the two Scotland Yard detectives arrived, the police announced they were looking for another individual with a noticeable scar on his face, could assist in their investigation. He was said to be around 30 years old, was about six feet tall and thinly built. The scar appeared old, positioned on the left side of his face between his eye 
open mouth. A police spokesman said, Some friends or acquaintances of Miss Curran may have heard her speak of a man answering this description. The fact that two weeks had gone by and the killer still remained elusive led people in White Abbey and further afield to fear for their safety, in particular women. In an effort to combat the unease, around 30 men volunteered to escort any women who had to go out after dark. These volunteers were supplied with identity badges by a local vigilance committee formed in the aftermath of Patricia's murder. The police provided regular updates on the investigation throughout November, and they continued to suggest they were not ruling out the possibility that a woman was involved in the killing despite some officers' misgivings. They said they felt as though there was somebody in White Abbey who was in a position to assist in the investigation, but had not spoken up. Officers also appealed to any women who had been sexually assaulted in the area and had not yet come forward to get in touch immediately. The following month brought a shocking new development when a man who was in custody in Manchester allegedly confessed to killing Patricia Curran. Superintendent Capstick and Inspector Kennedy promptly flew across the Irish Sea so they could interview him. Frustratingly, after the interview, the contents of which have never been publicly released, the officers ruled the man out of their inquiries and returned to White Abbey empty-handed. By the beginning of December... Over 5,000 statements had been taken and over 11,000 people had been interviewed. With the new year came a reward for information. On January 1st, 1953, a police in Northern Ireland announced that £1,000 would be provided to anyone who could produce information that led to the conviction of the guilty party. Interest in the reward fund gave way to a fresh tip from somebody who reported seeing a man emerging from the driveway of the current home at 6.10pm on the night Patricia was killed. Witness Hetty Little remarked, While I waited for the traffic to go by, I saw a chap come down the glen from the entrance of Judge Curran's house. He was thin and had a dust coat on, and he looked very pale. When I saw him, he hesitated, and then walked on. Two weeks later, there was a substantial development when the Royal Ulster Constabulary announced that they had finally made an arrest. A 20-year-old man was charged with the murder of Patricia Curran. Ian Hay Gordon was raised in Rangoon, Burma, now known as Myanmar, where his father was an engineer. During the initial six years of his life, Gordon grew into a sensitive and solitary child, since he did not have any peers to play with. 
when the Japanese invaded in 1942. He spent his days with his mother on an airfield awaiting evacuation. They were eventually sent to a refugee camp, where conditions were so horrific that Gordon's hair fell out due to the stress. In 1944, the family journeyed home to Scotland. The voyage was a terrifying one, as the constant sound of alarm bells, depth charges and air attack scares plagued the ship. Seven years would pass, and in May 1951, Gordon was called up for national service. At the time of Patricia's murder, he was stationed at RAF Edenmore on the edge of Whitehappy Village. He was known to the Curran family, having met them toward the end of 1951 when he sat in the same pew at White Abbey Presbyterian Church. Patricia's brother Desmond struck up a conversation with Gordon, and he was later invited to the family home, where Patricia prepared dinner. After Patricia was killed, Gordon came up on the police's radar. Sergeant William Leatham had interviewed the airman at RAF Edenmore in the immediate aftermath of the murder. Gordon was among them. He told the officer that he knew the Curran family and had met them at church. He had visited the Curran home and knew Patricia to be an athletic and pleasant girl but said he didn't know her well. During another interview, the airmen were asked to provide their whereabouts between 5pm and 6pm on November 12th. Gordon said that around 4.30pm he was at the White Abbey post office, but returned to the base for tea and was there from 5pm until 5.10pm. From there, Gordon said he went to his billet for a time before going to the office and then on to the Navy, Army and Air Force Institute. When the other airmen were interviewed, none of them recalled seeing Gordon at the billet. After making his statement, investigators would learn Gordon approached Corporal Henry Connor of RAF Edenmore. He asked his fellow officer to tell the police that they had tea together on November 12th and afterwards walk back to the billet together. Suspicions against Ian Gordon were mounting, and the police decided to examine his clothing, but no traces of blood were found. They did, however, discover Gordon continued to speak with Patricia's family members after her death, even questioning them about some of her belongings. On December 23rd, around six weeks after her body was found, Gordon had called Desmond at home and said he was anxious to speak with him before he was due to go on leave. He met with Desmond in a Belfast cafe, and they spoke for around three hours. As soon as Desmond Curran got home, he began making notes of the conversation. He wrote that Gordon sympathised with him about Patricia's unsolved murder and then suggested they go somewhere else to talk. 
Desmond and Gordon walk to the Presbyterian Hostel in Belfast, where Desmond asked Gordon what he thought of the murder. Gordon allegedly replied that he didn't know Patricia well enough to have any theories. Desmond recalled, Gordon told me that on November 12th he had gone to his billet and stayed there until 6pm, when he had been seen coming out. He apologised for not contacting us earlier, but he did not think his father would allow him to call, but he said his parents had told him not to contact the family. Gordon allegedly told Desmond that he found it strange that on that particular day, the family did not know where Patricia was or who she was with and suggested it was risky for her to drive a van for a construction firm, referring to the role she had undertaken before going to university. Although he said he did not know Patricia well, Gordon then asked Desmond what Patricia had said about him after they had met, whether she owned a diary, and if so, was there any mention of him in its pages? Desmond confirmed that Patricia kept a diary, but she had never written anything about Gordon to his knowledge. Stranger still, Gordon then went on to mention a killer who had been hanged during the late 1870s. Desmond recalled the conversation. I spoke about the terrible position of the murderer in this world and the next with this on his conscience. Gordon said Charlie Peace had killed three people and not confessed until he was dying. He said the Glen was not a spooky place and that it certainly held no terrors for me, with the emphasis on me. Gordon went on to tell Desmond he believed the murder was committed by somebody who knew the place well, and the motive was fear, because Patricia had found out something she shouldn't have. Surprisingly discussing the killing directly, Desmond explained that Gordon suggested that Patricia was most certainly dead by the fourth stab wound. Desmond asked how he knew this, and Gordon allegedly replied, Wasn't it in the paper? After the pair went their separate ways, later that night, Gordon again called Desmond and told him he did not need to worry. According to Desmond, Gordon said he had written him an 11-page letter explaining everything. Desmond Curran made the police aware of the conversation, and detectives arranged for Ian Gordon to be interviewed. He sat down with Detective Sergeant Dennis Hawkins from Scotland Yard and discussed his friendship with Desmond and offered his thoughts on Patricia. He told the detective, She was a very nice, quiet girl, but I did not think much about her as I had no interest in her. I had very little conversation with her. Patricia never expressed any opinion about my friendship with Desmond. Gordon mentioned his conversation with Corporal Henry Connor, but instead claimed that it was Corporal Connor who asked him to say he was with him the night Patricia was killed. He never said why he wanted me to say this, Gordon remarked. 
It might have been because he was on his own at the time. I had serious misgivings about it, but did agree to tell the RAF police a lying story. Ian Haygordon staunchly denied that he had anything to do with the killing, but shortly after this interview he was arrested and charged with Patricia Curran's murder. He was transported to Edenmore Police Station, where witness Hetty Little identified Gordon in a lineup as the man she had seen walking down the driveway of Glen House at 6.15pm on the night Patricia was attacked. In a plea hearing, Ian Gordon appeared before the court on February 6th, where he stood up and said, I plead not guilty and reserve my defence. After he spoke, three women in the courtroom broke into sustained hand clapping, which led resident magistrate Mr Mills to shout, Clear these people out. Who are they anyway? It was a foggy and cold morning in Carrickfergus on March 2nd, 1953. The area was fraught with tension and anticipation as hordes of people jostled for a position outside County Antrim Spring Assizes. They were desperate to get a coveted seat inside the courtroom where the high-profile murder trial was ready to begin. It took just 25 minutes for the Lord Chief Justice to select an all-male jury. During opening statements, Attorney General Mr Warnock said an attempt had been made to sexually assault Patricia Curran. He made reference to the rips on her clothing and said it indicated she had put up a stern resistance. He noted the neat pile of books beside Patricia's body and said that if the person who attacked Patricia was a stranger, then the books would have been disturbed. The Attorney General went on to speak about the defendant's movements around the time of Patricia's murder, telling the jury, His story is perfectly consistent but the Crown will seek to satisfy you that his story is false in every material particular. The jury heard from several airmen, all of whom could not recall seeing Ian Haygordon at the camp that evening on November 12, 1952. Corporal Henry Connor testified as well, telling the court that Gordon asked him to say they had tea together when in fact they had not. Mary Jackson, the wife of the commanding officer, also said that she had seen Gordon coming down the drive from the camp at around 5.10pm. Despite maintaining his innocence... It was revealed that Ian Gordon had allegedly confessed to the murder. The statement that Gordon made was read aloud by Inspector Kennedy. Gordon had reportedly said, I met Patricia Curran between the Glen and White Abbey post office. She said to me, Hello Ian, or something like that. I said, Hello Patricia. 
She asked me to escort her to her home on the Glen. I agreed to do so because it was fairly dark, and there was none of the family at the gate to the Glen. I can understand anyone being afraid of going up alone in the dark, because the light is completely cut out because the trees meet at the top. We both walked up the Glen together. After we had walked a few yards, I either held her left hand or arm as she walked. She did not object and was quite cheerful. Gordon then explained that they stopped walking and stood at the grass verge, where he asked if he could kiss her. Gordon said she laid her things on the grass. Before she did this, she was not keen on giving me a kiss, but consented in the end. I kissed her once or twice to begin with, and she did not object. She then asked me to continue escorting her up the drive. I did not do so, as I found I could not stop kissing her. She struggled and said, Don't, don't, you beast, or something like that. I struggled with her and she said to me, Let me go or I will tell my father. I then lost control of myself and Patricia fell down on the grass sobbing. She appeared to have fainted because she went limp. I'm a bit hazy about what happened next, but I probably pulled the body of Patricia through the bushes to hide it. I dragged her by her arms and hands but I cannot remember. According to the statement, Gordon wasn't sure how it happened, but he believed he stabbed her once or twice with his service knife that he had been carrying in his pocket. He stated, I may have caught her by the throat to stop her from shouting. I may have pushed her scarf against her mouth to stop her shouting. It is all very hazy, but I think I was disturbed either by seeing a light or by hearing footsteps in the drive. In the statement, Gordon said he threw the murder weapon into the sea after leaving the scene. After the confession was read aloud, Dr. Rossiter Lewis testified that he had examined the defendant for 11 hours reached the conclusion that Gordon was suffering from schizophrenia and hypoglycemia, which is a lack of glucose in the blood. The doctor said, I came to the further conclusion that, at the same time, he was suffering from a defect of understanding due to disease of the mind. The judge asked, is it your evidence that Gordon had no recollection of using a knife while in the Glen? Dr. Lewis replied, That is my opinion. The expert witness believed Ian Gordon was legally insane. Thomas McCaslar addressed the court next. He told the jury that while he was at an auxiliary Air Force summer camp in 1951, he met the defendant. He formed the impression that Gordon was, quote, not exactly quite right, childish, easily led and gullible. 
The witness explained that on one occasion, Gordon was told that he had to pass a test to ride his bicycle in the RAF and that he needed to have L-plates when riding around the camp. This was something the defendant allegedly believed. On another occasion, it was arranged that Gordon should win a boxing match. Afterwards, he claimed he was the squadron's champion boxer. Thomas McCaslar described how a black eye had been painted on Gordon's opponent, and Gordon again believed it. This testimony led the defence counsel to submit that Gordon was insane in the legal sense. However, Dr Mulligan, an expert witness called by the prosecution, countered the testimony. He said that from an early age, Gordon had been very sensitive, nervous, shy, subject to emotional displays, short-tempered, frightened of the dark and felt physically inferior. Dr Mulligan testified, It is definite in my opinion that he has not grown up emotionally and he lacks the ability to learn by previous experience. He is, in fact, a misfit in society. Following closing arguments, the judge summed up the case. He said to the jury, Did Gordon kill Miss Curran? And if he did, was he responsible for the crime? Having regard to his state of mind at the time, According to Ian Gordon's previous girlfriends, they could not believe that he had killed Patricia. Recounting evidence presented in court, the judge said one referred to the defendant as a cardboard lover because he was shy and ill at ease in their presence. As one former girlfriend recalled, he was always hesitant. He always asked for a kiss. He used to say, Please, can I hold your hand? If he did take a kiss, he always apologised as though he felt he had done something wrong. No girl likes a man to apologise for kissing her. The jury deliberated the evidence for almost two hours before returning with a verdict. They found Ian Hay Gordon guilty but insane. Jurors felt the defendant's actions resulted from his mental state. However, Gordon was still able to understand what he had done. As he was led away from the court, he turned and bowed to the judge. Gordon was ordered to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. Two weeks later, he was moved from Belfast Prison to Hollywell Mental Hospital, where he would be held indefinitely. Before long, however, Ian Hay Gordon's conviction would be called in to doubt. This is the end of episode 50. The second instalment in this two-part case will be available in three days.
Thank you for listening. And special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.